Welcome to the new Snack Professionals Corner, formerly the Snack Periscope, where we meet with experts to discuss topics relevant to seasoned neuroanesthesiologists. This is Amy Hoffnagel from the University of Florida in Jacksonville, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Mashore on behalf of the Snack Education Committee. Dr. George Mashore has both an MD and a PhD. He is our current president of SNAC. He's also the Associate Dean for Clinical and Translational Research and the Director of the Michigan Institute for Clinical Health and Research. Uh, He is the Burt N. Ledoux Professor of Anesthesiology, and he holds faculty appointments in the Department of Neurosurgery and the Neuroscience Graduate Program. He's an internationally recognized expert on the topics of consciousness, anesthetic mechanisms, and sleep. His investigations include a range of approaches from computational modeling to animal studies and clinical trials. Today is here to share with us his expertise. Dr. Mishore, on behalf of the Snack Education Committee, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So the first thing I have to ask is if you have any disclosures related to this topic. We have one patent pending on directional connectivity and states of consciousness, but that's it. How did you get involved in the study of consciousness? So I actually started out uh, in the liberal arts. I think it's fair to say that I was pretty much a scientific and mathematical illiterate uh, up until the age of about 20. So I was really more oriented toward the humanities uh, in my earlier years and wanted to have a, a rigorous liberal arts education with a focus on philosophy and the classics. And uh, the program that I chose actually required that we engage in in science, but in a, a very different way, more putting it into a broader intellectual context. So the two things happened during college. One, I really got interested in the philosophy of mind, uh, especially the work of Immanuel Kant and his critique of pure reason published in 1781. Um, and I also discovered that I had a real love possibly some ability uh, to do science. So I started getting interested in consciousness and the philosophical study, but then thought very early on about how maybe I could translate that to something related to clinical medicine or science. What are the implications for consciousness research and understanding anesthetic mechanisms? Well, I think they're profound. Personally, I've got a bias. Uh, I think there are a number of great approaches to thinking about anesthetic mechanisms, and I don't want to suggest that my way of thinking about it has primacy. But ultimately, I think the substrate on which anesthetics work or what they're modifying is consciousness, especially in this day and age where we have balanced anesthetic techniques and we're really looking to our agents uh, not to provide analgesia and neuromuscular relaxation, but unconsciousness. So there are a number of different approaches uh, to anesthetic mechanisms. There's the molecular or biophysical approach, and that's something that has been very fruitful, especially uh, with the identification of protein targets for anesthetics. When I started in the field, I started my residency in 2003, uh, people were starting to look more into systems neuroscience, so not just how things work on the molecular level, but how do they work at a network level, but more focused on sleep and subcortical regions. So I started thinking about, uh, instead of the molecular aspects, what are the neural mechanisms of consciousness and how do anesthetics act to uh, suppress or modulate those mechanisms. And 
uh, I took more of a uh, network-based approach and was thinking about how information is synthesized in the brain. Now, I'm not the only one who was thinking about this. There were, there were a couple people in that era uh, when I started thinking more about information-based theories and how the brain integrates information. Uh, and so in my first year of residency, actually, I almost by happenstance published a, a theory of how anesthetics work in, in the journal Anesthesiology. And it really focused on the way the brain synthesizes information, the way perception is organized and orchestrated, and how anesthetics could disrupt that process. It's not just that they're shutting neurons down or shutting the brain down, but rather they're fragmenting the processes that normally result uh, in an integrated perception. So after my residency training, and I had these theories or ideas, but I hadn't really done much work. And I didn't really have the methodology, and I didn't think we as a field really had the methodology to, to approach that question of integration uh, and communication in the brain. And so one of my first moves was to partner with a physicist from South Korea, Unchul Lee, who had specific expertise in network science and graph theory as formalism for thinking about how anesthetics fragment or, or disintegrate networks. And our collaboration has been very productive, and I think the introduction of the graph theory and these network-based approaches might be fruitful as we move forward uh, for thinking about how anesthetics uh, affect consciousness, especially in cortical and thalamocortical networks. So our discussion on this topic comes at a very good time, considering that you and several colleagues just recently published two different papers in anesthesiology this month in November. Can you tell me a little bit about your paper? Sure. So these articles, one was on rodents, one was on humans, really follow along this line, uh, using different techniques to uh, try to uh, appreciate what's going on at the network level. So the one in humans was uh, performed with sevoflurane. And propofol really has been uh, the drug of choice for anesthetic mechanism studies, and for good reason. Uh, but sevoflurane has also been explored. And this was one of the first studies to publish uh, simultaneous fMRI and EEG data, and essentially uh, confirming a hypothesis that is based on past work, uh, that there's a notable disconnection of the prefrontal cortex from more posterior regions, and there's also a, a disconnection uh, with the thalamus between the prefrontal cortex and the thalamic region, whereas primary sensory networks and those connections to primary sensory cortex seem to be preserved. So that was what was found at the fMRI level. And on the EEG level, we looked at surrogates for information transfer. And these are just surrogates. There are many limitations to these techniques. Uh, but essentially, we uh, confirmed past findings with propofol, and, and also we've shown this with ketamine, that there seems to be a loss of this connectivity pattern uh, from the prefrontal area to, to the back of the brain. Whether that's critical for consciousness, we don't know. It could be a higher cognition or an attentional mechanism that's also going away with consciousness. But I think the findings in sevoflurane were very consistent with past findings in uh, studies using propofol and even some EEG studies with ketamine. Now, on the rodent side, one question that we have to ask is how do we connect this network-level approach 
to what's going on at the molecular or neurochemical level. So what we did with this other study was to measure EEG, uh, but also acetylcholine levels in the cortex. And we applied some of the same techniques that we used in the human study to map out how uh, these connectivity patterns change with relationship to acetylcholine. And the findings were interesting in terms of what was happening in the theta bandwidth, which is an important bandwidth in rodents and associated with a waking state and REM sleep, and then higher activity in the gamma bandwidth. We found that the acetylcholine really, uh, those levels mapped on more to theta connectivity, and gamma connectivity uh, was consistently found during wakefulness and consistently lost during states of behavioral unconsciousness. So in some respect, a, a very simple study, but a first step in trying to make the connection between the network level phenomenon and what's going on at the neurochemical level. How do we take this information and translate it into our day-to-day practice in the OR? So that's a great question, and that's something that was addressed in part by the human study, because in addition to looking at the fMRI and trying to have a neurobiological basis for what's happening, and also the EEG in terms of these long-range connections, we also looked at changes in the EEG in the frontal area, uh, and that's an area that we have access to when we're in the operating room in terms of measurement. We know that we're not going to be able to capture, at least at this time, the whole picture of what's going on in terms of brain communication or this anterior-posterior connectivity, but we might find signatures, and there are a number of groups working on such signatures. We might find signatures in the frontal cortex that give us insight uh, into what's going on in the brain and and use those signatures as a marker for unconsciousness. In the case of this article, we had the fMRI, we had the the whole scalp EEG, and then the, the frontal area with a focus on another measure called permutation entropy is a way of getting a sense of what's happening to information processing in that brain region, and a brain region that's practically relevant uh, for intraoperative practice. Thank you, Dr. Mashur, for taking the time to speak with us today. I hope that you have a fantastic holiday season. You too. Take care. Thank you, everybody, for taking time to listen to the Experts Corner. See you next time. 